Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat, and today I'm thrilled and honored to be in dialogue with Rabbi Dr. Chaim Norman Strickman. He is a retired professor of Judaic Studies at Touro College. Today, we will be in dialogue regarding his newly translated and edited book, Abraham Ibn Ezra's the Secret of the Torah, a translation of Ibn Ezra's Yesod Mora, published in New York by Kodesh Press 2021. Chaim, it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today. I'm sincerely thrilled. And I'm very happy to be in dialogue with you. To begin, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you would become? As an adult, well, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, in a neighborhood known as Brownsville, which was a Jewish neighborhood. Uh, when I was about 12, 12 years old, my family moved to Crown Heights, which also was uh, a Jewish neighborhood. In fact, the Lubavitcher Rebbe had his headquarters there. And mm. occasionally on uh, Shabbos, it's known, uh, walking on the Eastern Parkway. Um, I went to a yeshiva called Hein Berlin, where I got a good Jewish education. And from there, I went to Yeshiva University, where I spent uh, four years undergraduate, two years postgraduate. And I entered the Smicha program. And in 1963, I got Smicha. And from there on, I went into uh, the rabbinate with an interview uh, teaching Savannah, Georgia. And that convinced me that teaching children is not my forte. And I decided to take a pulpit. Uh, well, I had the pulpit. I also went to Dropsing University in Philadelphia, studied with Dr. Zeitler, who was a major scholar of Judaism in the Second Temple period, Second Commonwealth. And I got my PhD in 1970. And I was lucky, and I got a position at Tour of College in 73. And I've been, t- uh, and I don't know if I mentioned that I was a rabbi at the Green Park Jewish Center in Brooklyn. So I combined being a rabbi, teaching at college, in uh, a career which spread was spread over close to well, forty years. And I moved to Israel seven years ago. Then here I'm sitting here being interviewed for a podcast. What inspired you to? write, prepare, edit, and translate this book, what message did you want your readers to receive from engagement with the thought and philosophy of Avraham Ibn Ezra? Okay. Um, Ibn Ezra, I mean, all great scholars are unique. Ibn Ezra is a unique scholar that I've always thought will appeal to modern Orthodox Jews. That's how I discovered it. Um, he dealt with some of the issues that I was concerned about. 
I can't say all of it. He had answers to all of my problems, but at least these were issues that that he openly spoke about. With some of the other commentaries, weren't bothered by the same problems that Ibn Ezra was bothered by, didn't deal with. Um, when it came to interpreting scripture, some of the non-literal interpretations of scripture caused me to gave me problems. And when I came across Ibn Ezra and I saw what he says. I said, my God, there's a great rabbi. I can't say he thinks all my lines. It's a great rabbi. But these are issues that are bothering me, and they were bothering and great growth. Uh, that made the impression on me with Ibn Ezra. And I really think that a lot of people are still being drawn to him by that aspect of this work. What are the primary themes in Yesod Mora? Okay. Um... Yesod Mara means the foundation of fear, okay? Meaning foundation of the fear of God. Or the word Mara, as it's used in Ibn Ezra, also stands for the commandments of the Torah. The Yesod Mara tries to explain the reason for Judaism and the reason for the commandments. And Ibn Ezra, one of the points that he makes in, in the book is, that the Torah was not given to fools. The Torah was given to intelligent people. Therefore, the Torah should be understood in an intelligent manner. Of course, different people have different opinions of what's intelligent and what's not. And makes life interesting. And that is why, by the way, there were people who were opposed to Ibn Ezra's thoughts. But uh, he held on to his, and he openly discussed that. And I might say that it's speaking highly of the Jews of Ashkenaz. This is where he spent uh, his uh, very active career from 1140 to the time that he probably that he passed away. That uh, in that climate of that period, he by and large was greatly respected, and his writings were studied eventually, and he had a great influence on uh, on Jewish thought. What we have to be aware of is. Most of the Jewish intellectual work, the philosophical work, was done in Arab-speaking countries. And the Jews living in Europe, or not necessarily Europe, the Jews living in Ashkenazic Europe, say France and Germany, they didn't speak Arabic. They could not handle Sadiqan in the original. Later on, they couldn't handle Moses Maimonides, the Ramam in the original, or Yehuda Alevi. Those books had to be translated. Ibn Ezra was one of the first to write a book on Jewish thought in Hebrew. And this was uh, accepted very happily by a good segment of Jewry. And he's known as Hechacham Ibn Ezra, the wise Ibn Ezra. Now, not everyone liked what he said, but um, uh, he opened their eyes. You see, do I have a great quote here if I can find it in my book, there I will uh, quote from Ibn Ezra where he says why he wrote this book, Yusad uh, Lara. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he writes, uh, The awe-inspiring God knows my heart's sincerity, for I did not compose this book to show that I mastered the sciences or to glorify myself by showing that secrets have been revealed to me. Neither did I write it in order to argue with our ancient sages. For I surely know that they were wiser 
and Lord God and Lord God fearing than I. I composed this book for a revered and noble individual whom I taught the books that I wrote for him. I troubled myself to compose a book for him dealing with the commandments, only because of my great love for him, for I found him to be a person of integrity whose fear of the Lord exceeded that of most men. So he wrote this book to inspire people like the one that he wrote this book for. for. The, the, the student that he wrote this book for was probably Joseph Ben Yaakov, who was one of Ibn Ezra's patrons. And uh, he dedicated this book to him because economically the man also uh, helped him out. Now, Ibn Ezra, I might as well go into this. Uh, mm -hmm. This introduction to this book goes on to say that the book was written so that a person can per perfect his soul. Ibn Ezra says, man's soul is unique. When it is first placed in the body, it is like a tablet set before a scribe. When God's writing is inscribed upon this tablet, then the soul clings to God both while it is yet in man and later after it leaves the human body. Okay, so uh, the purpose of uh, the Torah, the purpose of Judaism, is to help man develop his soul so that after he passes on, the soul will join other souls in heaven. Whereas the person who doesn't develop his soul, it, even as it appears to believe, loses it. Can you describe the times in which Abraham ibn Ezra lived? Can you describe the historical circumstances of his biography? Can you place his life in writing in historical context? Yes, he was He was born on the top of my head, let me see, in 92. And he lived in Spain till 1140. Now, what did he do? He was a poet. Uh, what does it mean he was a poet? That's how he made his living, probably. Which means uh, if someone had a wedding and they wanted to... Uh, have a poem read about the bridegroom or the bride. Ibn Ezra was the man to see. And there are a lot of poems that we have of his that he wrote to, on these occasions. It, by the way, he even has a poem, How Hard It Is to Sell a Poem. Because when he went to the man's house that he was going to try to sell a poem to, he was told he's not here. So he was a poet. In addition to being a poet, Ibn Ezra was also a, a, a thinker. He came into contact with the upper echelons of Jewish society and was well acquainted with Rabbi Yudahalevi. Some want to say he was related to him, but Ibn Ezra never says that. Though Ibn Ezra's son accompanied Rabbi Yudahalevi on his trip to Israel. He didn't go with him all the way to Israel. I think they split up in Egypt. So uh, Rabbi Yudahalevi was a poet. And uh, he had a difficult life. He may have had as many as five children, but four of them died in childbirth. And he had a son. He had problems with his son. Um, he lost his wife and never remarried again. Finally, in the year 1140, he left Spain. And there are questions, you know, historians like to ask, why did he leave Spain in 1140? People come up with various different ideas. But if we want to be, you know, super realistic, it's quite possible 
that he left Spain because he had something which the people in Italy, Germany, and France did not have, namely philosophical and secular knowledge. In Spain, maybe he wasn't considered the greatest philosopher. There were others going to France, going to uh, other places in Europe, not having the knowledge that he had, which they didn't have, was a way in which he could make a good living. Maybe I shouldn't use the word good, but the way where they could make a living. The Jewish people of France, of France and Italy, they were not able to read the great Hebrew grammarians that would be, and grammar books that were being produced now in uh, by the Jews of uh, uh, of Spain or in Egypt. They couldn't read Rafsad Yagon's Sefer Agro, which was the first dictionary in Hebrew. They couldn't read the other great works by grammarians. Along came Ibn Ezra, and he wrote for them books in Hebrew on Hebrew grammar. Now, a whole world was open to them. And he also introduced them, though he probably wasn't the only one, certainly he wasn't the only one, to how to read Tanakh in a literal fashion and not read it uh, in a homiletic fashion. Now, not that homilies are important, but it's also good to know what the text is saying, or what you think the text is saying. And this is what he uh, introduced them to. Had he remained in in Spain, I don't know who would be talking about him, but going to Italy, going to uh, Provence, going to northern France, and later on, we probably passed away in Italy. By the way, he wrote, uh, not Italy, England. He wrote the Sotmara in England. Um, so um, he made a great impression. And it was not only on Jews that he made an impression. Ibn Ezra was an astrologer, which in those days was very, I guess was, you could say an astronomer. But um, he, he cast charts. Some governors asked them he should cast charts for them. But he taught classes in astrology to non-Jewish Europeans. We have some books that he wrote Latin. The question is whether he wrote them in Latin or the students you know, transcribed what he lectured to them in Latin. And it's uh, very interesting uh, sometimes to come across a medieval document uh, which says, which refers to Dr. Ibn Ezra. That's not how the Jews refer to him. Uh, the Jews refer to him as Rabbi Ibn Ezra, Hechacham Rabbi Ibn Ezra. But he had students who uh, weren't Jewish that he taught the uh, uh, astrology to. There is even an opinion that he introduced the zero into Europe. He definitely introduced it to the Jewish community. Up to his period, there was no zero, so it's hard to do math without a zero. Uh, he definitely um, exposed his non-Jewish students to, to this. Um, however, it's very quite possible, and mathematicians uh, say that uh, but with somebody else who introduced the zero to Europe. But uh, he definitely taught mathematics to Europeans. Okay? So that, that, that's the background. Thank you. Okay. Unfortunately, in 1138, around then, um, Spain was invaded by uh, a fanatical sect of Muslims from North Africa. And 
tragedy befell the Jewish community of Spain. And there's a poem from Ibn Ezra lamenting the great tragedy that befell Spanish Jewry. There are those who want to say that Ibn Ezra left Spain because of these pogroms. But it isn't so, because he left Spain in 1140, and I think these pogroms occurred in 1138. No, no, 1038. I don't have my. Uh, I I know he left Spain before the the, the uh, before the pogroms broke out. If not, we'll have to check history book. How does your research improve our understanding of the relationship between Avraham Ibn Ezra and the philosophy of Spinoza? Of, of Spinoza. Spinoza studied in a Jewish school in Amsterdam, and it's pretty pretty certain that he studied Ibn Ezra. Aside from that, he quotes him in his books by name, so we know he studied from him. And uh, in, in fact, he made Ibn Ezra known because he quoted from him uh, in the non in the non Jewish world. Now, one of the things that Spinoza claimed that Ibn Ezra taught was the idea of pantheism. And actually, Ibn Ezra didn't teach that, but he has statements which come close to saying that. However, in the, you have to take the totality of his works, and every time he speaks about God, to see if that fits in. Now, I'm going to take one from the book of Genesis, book of Horatian, uh, which is, uh, let me see, which is chapter one. Uh-huh. I need the exact verse in a second. Whoops. It's at the end of uh, verse 26. Let us make man in God's image. Now, Ibn Ezra says in that, at the end of that, uh, of the paragraph, it, it, Dealing with the issue of the man created in God's image, Ibn Ezra says, God is one. He is the creator of all. He is all. I cannot explain further. Mm-hmm. Had, if Ibn Ezra spoke no, in no other place about God, it seems he is identifying the word with God. And indeed, Ibn Ezra says himself, after uh, saying what I just quoted him as saying, God is one, he is the creator of all, he is all. He says, I cannot explain further. Mm-hmm. Now, it's a question of what it means, I can't explain further. I, at first glance, it looks like this is a very hard thing. It's very difficult, esoteric, I can't explain it. Some want to read it as being, I am not permitted to explain it. But this is what Ibn Ezra says. However, if we only had this line of Ibn Ezra, then we could... You know, you could speculate that maybe he was a pantheist. This is all, by the way, this is all what Spinoza focused on. But the fact of the matter is, Ibn Ezra speaks about God throughout his commentary. And in, he also wrote poems, uh, hymns to God. And uh, it's, it's quite clear from that, that he did not believe in pantheism. So what do you do with a line like we just read? So Ibn Ezra says the following about God created man in God's image. In what way is man created in God's image? So Ibn Ezra says as follows. Man's upper soul is eternal and is compared in its existence to God. And because man's soul is incorporeal, 
and fills the body, which is a microcosm, in the same way that God fills the universe. Fills the universe. Scripture states, in our image and our likeness, He created us. So therefore, man is created in the image of God, and man has a soul which is godlike, and the soul is all over the body, but it can't be seen. And no part of the body can be said to, can one say, this is this is the part that's, God is in it. What Indonesia means is, God's spirit is all over the world and is in all things. And other Jewish thinkers say something very similar, but it's, it's a far jump from this line uh, just to focus on it and come up with what uh, Spinoza came up with. Uh, and he was a total pantheist. Is there anything else you wanted to address from the interview, or was this all? Oh, we were speaking about uh, the reasons why Ibn Ezra left Spain. Yes, I can. Uh, shall I ask that in the form of a question? Yes, uh, let me see. I, I know all the reasons that I gave. Uh, okay, you can ask in the form sure. of reasons. How does your research shed new light on the reasons why Avraham Ibn Ezra left Spain? Okay, um, I can't say that I came up with the reasons for it, but um, it would appear to me that he had an uh, uh, there was an economic reason for him leaving Spain. In Spain, he was a poet. He was also a thinker, but you have to put the foot on the table. What he what he had was knowledge. He had philosophical knowledge, but he had knowledge of the Spanish Jewish Bible commentators, like Yehuda ibn Chayyuj and the various other Bible commentaries who wrote in Arabic. The Jews living in in parts of Europe um, that were not uh, Arabic-speaking, such as France and Germany and Italy, they couldn't use those books. In fact, Jewish philosophy uh, books had to be translated from Arabic into uh, Hebrew, like Yehuda Levi's Kuzari, translated from Arabic to Hebrew, Rabbi Satya Goran's Book of Belief and Opinions, uh, the Rambam's Moran Avucha, and of course Ibn Ezra's Yisod Moran, which was one of the first Philosophical books, philosophy books, will be translated from Arabic into no. I'm sorry, which was one of the first philosophical books to be written in Hebrew. If you were of a bent and wanted to know Jewish philosophy and you didn't know Arabic, you were at a disadvantage. And in fact, is the translations were very popular in Europe. But in the case of Ibn Ezra, you had a live person would know the material and could teach the material. So it's quite possible that Ibn Ezra left Spain uh, for Italy and later northern France and southern France because he had something to teach, and indeed, that's how he made his living, teaching material which others did not have. And he even taught non-Jews, he taught them astrology. So it's quite possible that Ibn Ezra made this trip from uh, Spain to uh, non-Arabic speaking parts of Europe to be able to make a living. And we know that he had patrons who gave him money to produce books, which he 
occasionally dedicated to them. So that's one reason why he may have left. And, and we have documents stating how happy people were to see him and, and greet him when he came to um, uh, to, to Europe, uh, to, to uh, um, non-Arabic-speaking Europe, because now they had somebody who could teach them material that he, uh, he just did not have uh, at hand, which they did not have at hand before. Well, um, so that's one of the reasons he may have left. Another reason that he may have left uh, uh, Spain was the, the, the other reason, some say, is because of the Almohada invasion. The Almohadim were an Arab group who conquered a good part of Europe. Ultimately, they conquered Spain. And they did not allow freedom of religion. And to the Jews, they gave a choice, convert to Islam or be killed. So there were Jews who converted to Islam and secretly kept Judaism, like the Morales later on did in Christian Spain. There were others who left Muslim Spain and moved to northern Spain uh, where they could practice their religion namely Christian Spain, and a lot of uh, rabbis and people moved from uh, Spain, one part of Spain, to the other part. Some want to say Ibn Ezra's leaving of Spain was somehow, somehow tied to this invasion. But the truth of the matter is, it can't be, because Ibn Ezra left Spain in 1140, and the al came about 11, uh, 1145 or maybe 1148 in some places, well, so he left before they came. So their coming to Spain was not the reason why he left uh, uh, Spain, uh, uh, that he left uh, uh, Arabic-speaking Spain. So we have to look for a different reason. And that other reason seems to me to make the most sense is uh, that it was a chance to better his economics. Finally, some say that he was an individual who had in him a vandalist. He wanted to see different vistas, and he isn't the only one. There were other Jewish, uh, there were other rabbis or, or uh, other Jewish personalities who traveled around. Benjamin F. Tugello traveled all over uh, the Jewish world, and he wrote a book. And each place where he came, he wrote down how many Jews are living in this town and what they're doing. Uh, and they want to say that Ibn Ezra similarly had this need to move around in him. And he mentions things that uh, uh, that he saw. And you can only do that by traveling from place to place. There's one place where he says, now it's a question whether uh, th this occurred or whatever the case be, that he was on the Indian Ocean and there was a thick fog. And he uses it to explain the three days of darkness that swept over Egypt. So there was in him uh, a, a feeling and a need to travel and see different uh, things. So he traveled to Italy. He was in Rome. He was in Luca. Then he traveled to uh, Provence. Then he traveled to northern France. Then he traveled to England. He may have traveled to Morocco. Uh, 
and he may have traveled to the land of Israel. In, in the last few years, they found a, actually they found a, uh, a matzeva, they found a monument, a tombstone with the name on it, Abraham Ibn Ezra. And there's a question, is this Ibn Ezra's tombstone or not? If it is, then he did go to uh, the land of Israel. It's interesting that uh, Benjamin of Tujila, that person I just mentioned who traveled all over, uh, I believe he says that in the Galilee, he saw the grave of Rabbi Yehuda Levi and uh, Abraham Ibn Ezra. People did not take this very seriously because they didn't take it seriously. But now with finding that tombstone, it could very well be that... Uh, but he saw it was an accurate. But uh, he saw it was an accurate, an accurate uh, signing. Can you comment on the interconnections be between Yesod Morah and Abraham Ibn Ezra's Torah commentaries? In what ways do the themes presented complement or contradict one another? Actually, they do not. And some of the uh, comments that Ibn Ezra makes in his commentary on the Torah are repeated again in uh, his Yesod Morah on, I wouldn't say, basically, I think they both say the same thing. It might be a bit more concentrated in Ebenezer's Yesod Morah because it's a small book. And the Homish takes up much more space. But uh, basically, I off the top of my head, I can't think of any contradictions. I'll have some Yesod. And I'm trying to. I don't see any contradictions that I can think of. How has Yesod Morah been read and received by interpreters in the centuries following its publication? How was it read by fellow Spanish Jews? How was it received by conversos and anusim during the Inquisition? How was it appreciated during the Haskalah? How has it been read by Orthodox and non-Orthodox Jewish readers in contemporary times? Okay. The Maskilim, or some of them, liked Ibn Ezra very much. And they liked him because he had an independence there, which there's nothing wrong with. But if you're only taught to study the Chumash with Rashi and nobody else, or maybe you can if you want to, and if you're of a certain bent, you may see that there are some of the commentaries that Rashi says are not necessarily the literal meaning of the text. Well, people who uh, came across Ibn Ezra said, hey, I'm not the only one to say this. <laughs> Ibn Ezra says this. So he became a, a favorite. And, and also because he made some statements that uh, Amaska would really like. He said, Im If this interpretation is a tradition that's been handed down from generation to generation, Akabel, I accept the tradition. Vim Svarai, if it's based on an individual opinion, Yeshli Svaraharita, I have my own opinions. I have uh, my own independent opinions. So if this is, you know, a, a tradition based on the, on the Torah, I will accept it. If it's a tradition based because someone, whatever it is, no matter how great, gave his opinion, then I can give my own opinion. Now, you know, the masculine blind is the chores, you know, but it, things shouldn't be taken out of place, which they are very 
By the way, Spinoza, in my opinion, and opinion of others, also misinterpreted Ibn Ezra, and uh, he quoted a number of things that Ibn Ezra never said. He quoted Ibn Ezra's name, and um, or at least he interpreted what Ibn Ezra said the way he wanted him to say it, and uh, that caused, you know, but for some people, this made them fall in love with Ibn Ezra. They said basically he and Spinoza are on the same uh, on the same uh, uh, windlet, which they weren't. When you comment on the interconnections between Yasud Mora and Avraham Ibn Ezra's poetry, what are the similarities and differences? He, he, the Yasud Mora starts with a beautiful poem. Otherwise, I don't see any connection really. Well, the connections are, as you know, that God has no body or form. This is what Ibn Ezra taught. Um, it's, it's things of that nature. But by and large, it, you, can, you can write a book of poetry from Ibn Ezra uh, without uh, having to write the Yisotbara. They're, they're independent works. But you're raising a good point, and I may even look into it. How would Avram Ibn Ezra define the ideal person how would he characterize a good person? Okay. That he deals with. Ibn Ezra says that the goal of the Torah is to perfect the heart. Heart meaning the person's psyche. And he says a, a commandment of the Torah is not properly observed unless it's also observed with the heart. Doing things by rote Ibn Ezra is one of those, he says, is meaningless. The rituals of the Torah are all vain, aimed at perfecting a person. That's why there are laws of the Torah for charity. There are laws that prohibit uh, a person from striking another individual. Uh, there are laws that if you see a, a, a poor person, you have to help them. The Torah tries to make a person into a perfect individual. It doesn't always work with everybody, but that's the aim, and that's what everyone should aim at. Perfection of the heart, according to Ben Ezra, is the basis of the Torah. So um, he would disagree, say, with uh, someone in the in the modern periods who believe that Judaism, like Moshe Mendelssohn, who believe that Judaism is only a religion or practice. It is not a religion of belief. Ibn Ezra is... It's mainly a religion of belief, and the rituals just help us perfect this feeling of the spiritual part of our lives. How does Avraham Ibn Ezra in Yesod Morah understand evil? What does Yesod Morah teach us about evil? Okay, the big issue in, in middle Jewish, medieval Jewish thinking is the existence of evil. Maimonides did his best to try to explain it by saying that people have to realize they're not the center of the world. And some of the things that are necessary necessary for the world to function may harm the individual. And we have to be mature enough to know this, but that God doesn't want to do anything that's bad, and he doesn't do anything that's bad. And we have to realize that what we think is bad is something that, that is necessary. That's what he says in the uh, Guide for the Perplexed. Ibn Ezra's idea was that there is a certain amount of evil in the world, but the good 
is much more than the and the intelligent person according to Benazir will realize that there's more good in the world than evil in the world. And that most of the things that are wrong with the world is because people just don't want to follow the ethical principles of Torah. If they would, it would be a different world. Ibn Ezra says on in the Bible and the book of Generation where it says, God saw everything that he made and it was very good. So Ibn Ezra says, the majority of things are good. There is a little evil pushed in with it. But by and large, it's, it's mostly for the good. And you comment on the similarities and differences between Abram Ibn Ezra's message and messages in Yesod Morah and Moses Maimonides' message and messages in The God of the Perplexed. What are the interconnections between the two works? In what ways do they contradict or complement one another? You hit the nail on the head. I've written a little about this, but uh, it's my opinion that Ibn Ezra had an influence on Rambam. If he didn't, then there are certain things that are in the Rambam similar to what Ibn Ezra says. The differences, I mean, very a lot of differences, but the basic difference is the Guide for the Perplexed is a big book, and Ibn Ezra's Sotmara uh, is not that big. But um, there are certain similarities between Ibn Ezra and the Rambam. Take some which today isn't earth-shaking, but then was. Ibn Ezra says that God is not to be conceived as having a body. He's incorporeal. What do you do with those parts of the Bible that speak of God having a body, which there are a lot of? Anthropomorphisms. Ibn Ezra says, Dibra Torah Kalosha Ben Adam, which is based on the Talmudic passage. The Torah speaks in human language. And people can only speak in terms of images. Without images, we can't think about anything. So if we want to describe God, we have to use human images. God's mighty hand, or God is angry, but don't take these things literally. This the Rambam agrees with Ibn Ezra. Incidentally, the Rambam passed away in 1104, something like that, and Ibn Ezra passed away in 1167. So Ibn Ezra is a generation before. I might note that the Rambam's son, Avram, quotes Ibn Ezra in his commentary on the Chumash. Okay, so both of them agree that uh, God is incorporeal. However, the Rambam goes further. Ibn Ezra, it would appear to me, believes that someone who believes that God has a body is being foolish. Rambam believes he's worshiping idols. Rambam believes if you conceive of God physically, you you are an, an adult. Okay, that's a basic difference between the Rambam and a lot of other Jewish thinkers. The major Jewish thinkers all tell you that God has no body. Hey, look, the Musakov, that comes from Rambam. It comes from a poem based on Rambam. But uh, Ibn Ezra believes, and the others, I mean, the guide, Chobos of others, the duties of the heart says explicitly, only a fool believes that God has a body. Ibn Ezra goes further, not Ibn Ezra, Maimonides goes further, 
and Maimonides uh, considers uh, uh, anyone who believes that God has a body as a pagan. This is a very difficult uh, issue, and it was discussed by Jewish thinkers. By the way, Ravad, who was Rambam's opponent, who wrote a book criticizing the Mishnah Torah, he says, why does Rambam call him a heretic? Maybe he's just because he takes the Bible literally, he's not sophisticated. Maybe he's foolish, but he's not a heretic. That's one of the big differences between uh, the Rambam and, and, and the Ravid, and the Rabbi Abraham Rabdavi. Okay, now, what other uh, parallels do we have between uh, the Rambam and Ibn Ezra? Um, yes. Um, Ibn Ezra had an ascetic streak. That doesn't mean he was an ascetic. He wrote poems on the wine. Now, wine songs for people that people had a party. Today, they have musicians. In those days, they used to drink wine. So he uh, he wrote wine songs. I don't think it was the Rambam ever wrote a wine song. I might be wrong, but he certainly I haven't seen any. Now, Ibn Ezra believed that a a truly pious person who leaned towards asceticism, for example. There's a difference of opinion regarding a Nazarite. Is the Nazarite a sinner or is the Nazarite a super pious person? The two opinions are a Talmud. Maimonides says that the Nazarite is a sinner. It's enough what God prohibited. He didn't have to go and define himself additional prohibitions. You know, the Nazarite can't cut his hair, uh, he can't drink wine. Rambam believes that's going to an extreme. How then? Why does the Torah say the Rambam considers a Nazarite? Uh, he considers the prohibitions that the Nazarite has to go through as a uh, way of controlling his lusts. A lustful person has to control himself, and the way to control yourself is, according to the Rambam, you have to go to the opposite extreme, and then you will end up with a well-balanced life. So according to the Rambam, the reason why the Torah lays down asceticism is if you are of a certain type of personality and you want to change yourself, this is what you should do. Ibn Ezra says, no, the Nazarite is a holy person. And the reason the Nazarite is called a sinner is because he's not a Nazarite forever. He only practices being a Nazar for a certain period of time. 30 days, a year, whatever it happens to be. But then he goes back to the mundane world. Well, that's a very big difference between Ibn Ezra, theoretically anyway, and the Rambam. How does Yesod Mora understand the philosophical value of the Hebrew alphabet? Okay, you got me there. Uh, Ibn Ezra has a mystical side. He explains the alphabet mystically. Uh, that's the, that's part of the hardest parts of the Sodmara, unless you you know you, you are part of that tradition uh, that understands uh, the Hebrew alphabet the, that the letters have meanings and uh, the Aleph is made a certain way in reaching towards the heaven, and the Lamed stands for studying. No, he he believes the uh, the uh, the Hebrew alphabet has meanings. He got part of it, I think, from the Sefer Yitzira, 
believes that God created the world using the alphabet and uh, the, the and the first ten uh, nine letters of the uh, of the numbers and integers, the first nine numbers, and it was a combination of letters and mathematics that gave birth to the world. If I read it correctly, let's try it again. Al Hassan Ben Ezra. How might Abraham Ibn Ezra respond to questions posed about commandments or mitzvot whose underlying ethical principles, which he tries to explain, are difficult to comprehend or understand in light of new understandings of ethics? in light of progress in ethics, or in light of changes in ethics? I don't think Ibn Ezra had the idea of development of ethics. He believed that what the Torah says is ethical, and you can't go beyond it. Now, you'll tell me I'm going to argue with him. He's not here, so we can't argue with him. But he will tell you right now, the the Torah is ethical, and you, you can't go beyond it. How can Yesod Mora speak to perspectives in contemporary Jewish philosophy? Okay. All right. Now, this is not simple and there's no easy answer, but I'll try. Within Orthodox Judaism today, as it was before, there is a difference of opinion regarding secular studies. The issue is raised in America. I don't know if you've followed the newspapers that certain... Uh, Ultra-Orthodox, I'll use that term, schools don't teach children uh, enough secular material, say mathematics, or even English. And it's certainly the case in Israel, where uh, ultra-Orthodox Jews don't get a secular education at all. Uh-huh. Ibn Ezra had the idea that you can, now I'm not saying studying uh, medieval histories, but to solve the problem of intellectualism. But Ibn Ezra had the uh, a belief that there's certain things that every intelligent person must study and know. And you can't be a truly developed human being until you know these things. For example, he believed that you must know mathematics. He believed you have to know astro- uh, astronomy. I mean, you can't do anything with the Torah if you don't know astronomy. You can't make a, cal- a Jewish calendar unless you're not to sit down and, uh, and do the calculations. There are other calculations that you you can't do if you're not uh, if you don't know mathematics. Okay. In addition, uh, Hebrew grammar you must know. There was a movement or a certain segment Judaism or not to do away with Hebrew grammar because secularized Jews put emphasis on it. But if you don't know the Hebrew grammar, you can't study the Torah. So Ibn Ezra believed you have to know the sciences. Where we may ask questions upon him, and I certainly can agree, is not everything that the medieval scientists believe is necessarily true. In fact, we know a lot of it isn't true. There are no uh, there are no spheres in the sky which they believed. No, there are a lot of things that medieval people believe that we know aren't so. And Ibn Ezra believed you have to know that. Okay, so those things change. You can't argue. However, the idea that being a Religious, Torah Jew means you also have to be ignorant of the scientific world that Ibn Ezra would disagree with. In fact, it is said that he was a physician, but I don't know. 
the proof that I saw the document. He, he knew about medicine, but it, that's because he was an intelligent person for that period. But uh, he wasn't like the Ramban as far as medical knowledge goes. Here we have a difference that you asked me between Maimonides and Ibn Ezra. Ramban's knowledge of medicine was much greater. How do we know? We have some of the medical books of the Ramban. Okay. Thank you. How does Ibn Ezra understand suffering? How does Ibn Ezra understand? Suffering. What does Yesod Mura say about trauma and human suffering? You're asking a very good question. uh, It takes time to focus on it. He went through a lot of suffering. I mean, if they report that he had five children and four of them passed away when they were very young, and in the trouble that it was with his son. Okay. Um, by the way, in his poetry, he, he speaks of his anguish, how he, he he was attacked. We don't know exactly when did the attack took place. Uh, his way of dealing with it is to pray to God. In fact, I want you to know something, and this is another trick that's between Ibn Ezra and Maimonides. It's popping up. Ibn Ezra believed that a truly believing Jew will not rely on medicine, they will pray to God. And if God wants to, God will heal him. And if you won't, he has to accept God's ruling. Rambam Maimonides on the other hand said, no, you must go to a physician. And Maimonides interpreted the biblical verse, he shall heal him, meaning that there's a mitzvah for a physician to heal a sick person. So the Rambam said, if you're sick, you go to a physician. Even Ezra said, if you're sick, you pray to God, and hopefully he will listen to you, and he will save you. That's one of the big differences between the Ramban, again, I'm not repeating myself, and Ibn Ezra. Ramam said, when you're hungry, you eat, all right? When you're sick, you take medicine. And of course, when you eat, you make a brachal for an after. But you don't stop eating because you feel God is going to send down food to you, which will somehow penetrate into your body. But this is, by the way, one of the major differences between the Rambam and Ibn Ezra. But Ibn Ezra lived a little life, so he got along without physicians. What does Yesod Mora say about divine punishment? How does this this unfold, and what are the nuances of divine punishment, according to Ibn Ezra? About divine punishment? Yes. He believes that when people sin, God's protective shield over them is removed. And he also believes when the person is really bad, God will look a boomerang, strike him. Mm-hmm. Unlike Rav Sadiagon, I don't think he deals with the question the righteous person who appears to be suffering and the wicked one who seems to be in good shape. Rav Sadiagon dealt with this. Uh, I'm not aware of Ibn Ezra dealing with how would you identify the genre of writing that Yesod Mora is? Is it an ethical treatise? Is it a polemic? Is it a work in moral philosophy? Is it a study in jurisprudence? Is it something else? Is it all of the above? It's a series of essays, some of which is easy to understand, but then a good part of the book is very hard to understand. And that is the problem with Ibn Ezra is one of the hardest in the Bible, also biblical commentaries to understand, and com- commentaries are being written on him till today. Obviously, 
there's something in what he says. But to children, basically, recently, there weren't that many very readable commentaries. Today, there are. So um, his son, Laurent, without a commentary, is very difficult to grasp. I would like to think that I made him understandable uh, in, in my translation. Uh, I hope I did. But there are, the chapter on the alphabet, I, I translated it and I explained it, explained it in quotes, you know, following uh, what commentaries say. But uh, he does not have an easy style. There are those that I believe that he'll say he wrote this way because he didn't want everyone to understand what he said. Medieval writing in general is hard to understand because um, they left out sometimes verbs and they left out nouns, assuming that the reader will understand what's left out. Well, you reach a point where so much is left out, the reader doesn't know what you're talking about. What does Avraham? Ibn Ezra mean by obligatory and non-obligatory commandments. What are some examples of each? Can you specifically elaborate on what is meant by non-obligatory commandments? How is it his presentation of non-obligatory commandments relevant to how we think about Judaism in contemporary times? Okay, yeah, so yes, let me start. Go ahead, yes. Non-obligatory commandments is, yeah. If you have non-kosher meat, the Torah says, give it to your dog. Is there an obligation to give it to your dog? You don't make a bracha when you give it to the dog. I, I think that's what he means. What Nezra said, there are those who include, he's taking issue with some of the people, count 613 commandments, non-obligatory commandments. Among the composers of the Asarot, there are those who include optional acts of the commandments. They thus live. The list, you may give it, anything that dies of itself, that's what the Torah says, to the stranger that is within your gates, or you may sell it unto a foreigner. They count this as a precept, even though a person is permitted to dispose of the carcass in any manner he desires. You shall cast the flesh torn by beasts to the dogs is similarly optional. For its meaning is tied, and you shall be holy men unto me. The meaning of the ver verse is, it is unfit for you to eat meat that has been torn. Give it rather to the dog that guards your sheep. But there's not a specific mitzvah for you to give it to the dog. Here, here's my footnote. Yes. The Ibn Ezra, footnote 55. You do not have to necessarily cast the meat to a dog. Right? That's what I just said. Some opinions, however, held that you shall cast it to the dog is a commandment. See the commandments of Ibn Gabiro, who lists the ed nevela la that you shall give the dead animal that dies of itself to the strangers among the 613 commandments. Also see Tosafot Yuma 31b. Uh, where he discusses the prohibition of the Nevela. Well, uh, so the, uh, the commandment, uh, I will go and double check that this Sabbath before I have a chance that the, the commandment, uh, you know, to, to give the torn meat to the dog. Yes, I was going to just signed, sign off by perhaps asking you what have you been working on since completing this book? 
Um, what have you devoted your time to? Would you like to share with us any subsequent projects that you have engaged in or subsequent commitments that you devoted your time to since completing this book? What I'm working on now is there is a website called Allah Torah that is trying to put out the traditional Jewish documents in English on the uh, web. And the website is Allah Torah. I have some work that I've done um, on that website. I put out a translation of Ibn uh, Ezra's commentary on the Book of Esther. He wrote two commentaries. I translated both of them. I wrote notes. The Book of Gehelet, I did. The Book of Psalms, I translated Ibn Ezra on the Torah. So right now, I'm working on the Maharikra from Rabbi Yosef Kara. A similar answer by Stephen Ezra on his uh, commentary on the book of the Judges. I did Joshua, and I'm working on Judges now. I assume that's what I'm doing. Uh, I wouldn't mind putting out the books that I put on the web in uh, report hard cover, but, you know, there's an economic issue to it, so. And anyway, more people read your books up wet and the other way. But uh, that's what I'm working on now. It sounds like a wonderful initiative. It's so necessary and makes a significant contribution to our knowledge. So I I applaud you and congratulate you on your work with the Al Hatora website. Thank you very much. Rabbi Hillel Levitsky, incidentally, is the one who was in charge of the Alatorio website. He came up with the idea, and they have put out a, a lot of material as well. I am signing off. I'm, I'm just going to sign off by thanking you for your time and by reminding our listeners that I'm your host on the New Books Network and the New Books and Jewish Studies podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, I've been in dialogue with Rabbi Dr. Chaim Norman Strickman. He is a retired professor of Judaic studies at Turo College. We have been discussing his newly edited and translated book, Abraham Ibn Ezra's The Secret of the Torah, a translation of Ibn Ezra's Yesod Mora, published in New York by Kodesh Press 2021. Good Yes. I'm also Rabbi Emeritus of the Marie Bachu Center, Brooklyn. I would hate my not battle to say I forgot to mention. Thank you that thank you for adding that. Okay. It's important for all of us to know. Thank you.